Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 10. In uh, last week's passage, we're going to be in verse 16 today, verses 16 to 25. And in last week's passage, we see uh, Jesus commissioning uh, his disciples to take the gospel on the road. Uh, he told them to pack light. He told them to rely on the hospitality of fellow Christians. And he told them, uh, don't spend a lot of time uh, in areas that are hostile and just you know, move, move on. Um, and those were the, kind of the basics of uh, what he gave them. Today, uh, in verse 16, he, he kind of brings some reality to the mission. He tells them that this mission is going to be difficult, and, and that might even be an understatement. Maybe uh, to call this an impossible mission would, would probably be a more apt way to say it. Matter of fact, in verse 16, he says, behold, in other words, okay, guys, bring it in. <laughs> behold, I'm sending you out as sheep into the midst of the wolves. Go team, right? How, how, many, how many of you have played sports and you've been in a huddle and that was, you know, the, the inspiring words from the coach? This is going to be rough. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, what do we, what do we know about sheep? They're, they're pretty defenseless, right? They're pretty docile. They, they don't really have much, of, like they graze. That's kind of what sheep sheeps do. What do we know about wolves? Wolves are towards the top of the food chain, and they've got fangs. They've got teeth, and they'll just tear you apart. And this is what Jesus tells them. You're sheep, and I'm sending you out to the wolves. That's the mission. That's the mission. And so uh, right out of the gate, we know that like, this is, there's an impossibility here. Sheep do not beat the wolves. They don't win against the wolves. It's the wolves who obliterate the sheep. There is no chance with what Jesus said here of mission success. Zero chance whatsoever. And this is what he's sending his team out to do. Now, the good news about this is if you think about what, what kind of stories do we like? What are some of your favorite movies or books? Some of your favorite movies and books are sheep going out into the midst of the wolves. We love the underdogs, don't we? We love a good underdog story. We love seeing an underdog succeed. Tom Cruise has shown us that there is no mission that's impossible, right? Sorry for that. <laughs> but some, some of our favorite stories, we think about William Wallace, Braveheart's like my favorite movie. William Wallace, impossible odds. And success wasn't necessarily achieved in his lifetime, but because of what he did, mission success came later. We think about Rocky Balboa, maybe the ultimate underdog, right? Watched a documentary last night on kind of a re-edit of Rocky IV, which is, is maybe, maybe the second best Rocky of them all, right? But, but he fights Dolph Lundgren, Drago, who's like a foot taller than him. And this guy, like his training is all the, the modern, most technical stuff. And here, you know, Rocky's out climbing mountains and, and chopping wood, and that's his training. And he, and he succeeds, and we love those kinds of stories. Maybe an unlikely underdog success story, Andy Dufresne. And if you know who Andy Dufresne is, then we can be friends. Shawshank Redemption, right? Great, great story. But perhaps, maybe the greatest underdog story, at, le at least in my mind, this is probably subjective, but uh, Rudy Rudiger. Do we all know who Rudy is? 
We've seen the movie Rudy. Rudy has no business being on the football field. Right? Five foot nothing, as they say to him. And he's, he's a weakling, but he just has this passion and this desire to play football for Notre Dame. And, and the story of Rudy is the story of a man that had some tenacity to him and beat the odds. And not to spoil it, but if you haven't seen Rudy by now, it, I'm, you deserve for it to be spoiled because it's been around for a long time. Get to the end of the movie, and Rudy gets his shot to play in the game. And he's out on the field, and he, does, he makes a play, right? And the crowd goes nuts, and people are chanting, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. Like, if you don't cry in that, there's something wrong with you. Not much gets me, but that, like, that gets me every single time. And Rudy's out on the field, and he, he doesn't know what to do. He's just like trying to figure out, and the coach is like, stay out there, stay out there. And he, he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. But he achieves mission success, and we, we love those kinds of stories. Well, this is the kind of story that Jesus is setting up in Matthew 10, verse 16. I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. You, you don't have a chance at this. This is an impossible mission and it would be crazy if it were anyone else other than Jesus sending the disciples and us on this kind of a mission. But it's not crazy because it is Jesus who is the one saying, I want you to go engage in this mission. The same Jesus that's telling his disciples in Matthew 10, 16 that he's sending them out as sheep among the wolves is the same Jesus that says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Have you ever thought about how big of a statement that is? Not a little bit of authority, not some authority, not even most authority, but all authority, and not, not even on earth, but all authority in heaven. All the authority that exists everywhere belongs to Jesus. And that's the guy that's saying, I'm going to send you out a sheep among the wolves. Do, do you think we have a reasonable chance here at mission success given who's giving us the command. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, in other words, in light of all the authority that I have, I'm telling you to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And if that's not enough, Another big statement at the end. So sandwiched in between the command to go make disciples is that I have all authority in heaven and on earth, all the authority everywhere, bookmarked by saying, behold, I am with you till the end of the age. So it's not like Jesus is saying, go do this difficult thing and let me know how it goes when it's done. He's saying, go do this difficult thing and I'm with you. Not just in the beginning, not just at the end, but always into the end of the age. This is an underdog story that we can get behind. Not only can we get behind it, this is an underdog story in which we can participate. We are the underdogs in this. Like we're the Rudy Rudigers, we're the William Wallaces, right? That that's us facing impossible, insurmountable odds. But given the command to do so by the person that holds all the authority everywhere, and is promising to be with us. Is that enough for us to engage in the mission that God has put in front of us? I hope so. And that's not to say that, like, in a minute, we're going to look at the, the difficulties that are going to come with this mission. 
Matter of fact, we're going to look at just this idea that, that in the Christian life, often winning looks an awful lot like losing. When Jesus was nailed on the cross, how do you think the disciples felt? Do you think they felt maybe a sense of defeat? Probably. What about Israel? When, when Israel was looking for the coming of the promised Messiah, and they get word that the Messiah shows up on scene, and, and who's the Messiah? A baby. Not, not somebody with a sword and ready to take names, but a baby. Do you think there was maybe a sense of defeat that was felt there among some? Probably. Jesus has this way of making winning look an awful lot like losing, but in the end it's not because he, he wins in the end. And so he tells his disciples, I'm, I'm sending you out, pack light, rely on other people's hospitality within the church, move on when people don't respond all that well to the message, but it's going to be hard. This is going to be maybe even the hardest thing that, that you have ever done. And so he tells them, I'm sending you out a sheep among the wolves, so be wise as serpents and be innocent as doves. Those are not things that we might put together, the serpent and the dove, kind of opposite ends of, of, of a spectrum, right? Opposite ends even of the food chain, right? We, we don't, no, nobody likes reptiles. I don't know why God created them, but nobody likes reptiles, right? None of us see a snake on the ground and think, oh, I'm going to go pet it. Maybe when you're a little kid because you don't know any better, but adult, like we see a snake and, and we either stomp on it or we run away. And Jesus tells his disciples to, to be wise. Like serpents are known for their cunning. And Jesus tells his disciples in this impossible mission, as you face these insurmountable odds, you need to do so with the cunningness of a serpent, with the wisdom of a serpent. Pay attention to what's going on around you. And at the same time, to be innocent as doves. In other words, what he is saying is to be wise and to be pure at the same time. And the way that I take this is that Jesus is telling his disciples that as they face these insurmountable and impossible odds, as they engage a culture that's hostile to them, right? We, we haven't known much hostility uh, within Christianity in America. We, we, we just haven't, especially compared to the hostility that Christians face around the world. Right? We, we read about it, we hear about it, sometimes we see it on YouTube, but we, we don't know like real legit hostility towards Christianity here in America. And Jesus is telling His disciples as they engage a hostile culture to not engage the hostile culture in the way that the hostile culture engages them. In other words, he's saying, don't fight fire with fire. If a culture is hostile to you, it's not the Christian way to be hostile back to the culture. And that, that idea right there would, would speak into kind of this popular notion these days of Christian nationalism, and I don't want to go off on a tangent today, but just this simple statement by Jesus should, should tell us something about what Jesus thinks of Christian nationalism. Don't engage the culture in the way that they engage you. Don't fight fire with fire. He might even be saying, don't fight fire with water. That would make sense to us. As wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. Engage the culture, yes, with wisdom, but also with purity and with righteousness and with the holiness that is befitting of a Christian.
how do we do that? What, what does that look like? This, this, is a, this is an often, I think, overlooked statement of Jesus that begs some consideration on our part. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of the wolves, impossible, insurmountable odds. So, therefore, in other words, be wise and be pure as you face these insurmountable, impossible odds and as you engage a hostile culture. And then the next few verses, he's going to tell us what the hostility of that culture will look like. Verses 17 to 23, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your, of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So if it wasn't bad enough that he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves, I'm sending you out into a, a situation that normally would have zero chance of success, he breaks down for us in a little bit of detail. Here's some of the things that you're going to encounter. He says, when they deliver you over, not, not if you get delivered over, but when they deliver you over. Now, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about some things that are about to go down and happen to this specific group of people in this specific place and time, but I don't think we can disconnect ourselves from what's happening here. Again, we don't really know hostility towards our faith here in America, but I think we can all look at the trajectory of things and see that we're going to know it probably sometime in our lifetimes, we're going to see real, legit hostility towards Christianity. I think it was a couple of years back that a court in England ruled that the Bible is hate speech. Never seen that before. People have generally, even if they don't necessarily agree with all the things in the Bible, people generally, historically would say, well, it, it, you know, there's a reason we call it the good book. Right? It's full of good advice, according to many. Even if people don't necessarily agree with all Jesus said, many people would not argue that Jesus was a good man that did good things. Right? But, but now we're at a point in society where you know, an official ruling has come down from a court saying, yeah, the, the good book is hate speech. I read just, just about a, a few weeks ago, or maybe about a month ago, somebody got arrested, I think also in England, if I remember right, uh, for silently praying outside of an abortion clinic. Not even out loud. I don't, I don't know how this came down. Maybe they asked, what are you doing? And the lady said, oh, I'm praying. And so they arrested her for just silently praying to herself. Like that, that's hostility towards the Christian faith. And even that, compared to a lot of things, is pretty minor. But, but like we see that these things are coming. So again, we, we can't disconnect ourselves from what Jesus is saying to a specific group of people at a specific time about what's going to happen to them. They will deliver you over to courts, Jesus tells them, and flog you in their synagogues. Again, this is something I think we often overlook. Being flogged in the synagogue. 
They're going to take you to church and, and they're, going to, they're going to do things to you that shouldn't happen in the church. This is what Jesus is telling His disciples. He says, you'll be dragged before governors and kings. You're going to be put in front of the authorities. And, and all these things, like we see these things unfold in the book of Acts. right? You just have to flip your Bible over a few pages and you'll see these very things happening. But Jesus tells them that these things are going to happen for a reason. They're going to happen for my sake, Jesus says, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. This is God's plan. This is the plan designed by God, the one who holds all authority everywhere all of the time, the one who is sending us out to this impossible mission, the one who has promised to be with us every step of the way, giving His disciples some reassurance that this is the way things are supposed to be. There's a way for a king to hear the gospel designed by God, and it's going to be for a nobody, maybe to even be martyred in the presence of that king, to bear witness about who Christ is. We wouldn't write this story because it's kind of crazy, but it's the story that God has written. It's all part of the plan that Christians would be persecuted. We don't like to hear that. Sorry if that rubs you the wrong way. But this is, this is part of God's design. The, the entirety of the book of Acts is Christians being persecuted and as a result of that persecution, the gospel going out to the world. How would the gospel go out to the world if there was nothing that ever made us flee? This is where winning looks an awful lot like losing. When they deliver you over, not if, but when, Jesus says, don't be anxious about what you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, standing up here in front of you guys week after week is, is not persecution, far from it. And I know I probably speak for David and Brent, when I, when I say we, we stand up here every week begging God to help us know what to say. <laughs> and this isn't even hard, comparatively speaking. A pastor who I have a lot of respect for once said that his practice when he comes up to the pulpit is to say, God, please make something out of nothing. And he's a guy that I don't think exactly has nothing to bring. And again, this, this isn't even hard. But Jesus tells us when we, when we go through these hard things, when persecution comes, we, we don't have to sit here right now and think about what am I going to say when, when I get dragged up in front of a judge. I'm not saying it would be wrong to do so, but Jesus is saying when, when persecution comes, and when it comes time for you to testify of your faith, when it comes time for you to speak the truth of the gospel, in those hard moments... This is where the Holy Spirit comes in is going to give you what you need to say. Many of us tend to think, okay, we're like, we're not educated, we're not that smart, we don't know a whole lot. You know, what, what, what do I have to say to anybody about anything? And Jesus tells us when it comes to testifying of the gospel, that when the time comes, the Spirit will work in us to give us what we need when we need it. And we don't have to worry about it. How cool is that? 
maybe we're inching our way towards some mission success here, right? In what Jesus said He's going to do for us. And then He gives them some more hard, hard things. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. If it, hasn't, if it wasn't bad enough already, insurmountable odds, drug before authorities, contention in the church, contention now in your own family. Parents and children are going to divide over faith, even to the point of death. This is an ugly picture. This is, this, I don't know how this picture could get much uglier than it is right now. And then if that's not bad enough, he just says, you're going to be hated by all. Like, if I haven't covered anything, if there's something I've missed, you're going to be hated by all. And I think what Jesus is saying is, it's not that the entirety of the world is going to hate Christians, because some are going to respond to the message, but I think he's saying, from all sectors, all classes of people, all groups, as time goes on, there's going to be more and more hostility towards the things of God from people who are not of God. And it's going to get hard, and Jesus is trying to give us a glimpse of what's to come so that to some extent we can be prepared as much as possible. But then he leaves us with some encouragement in in this part of the, the text. But, he says, the one who endures till the end will be saved. And we know from other places in the Bible, John 17, namely, that that Jesus says that He will not lose any of whom the Father has given to Him. He won't lose any. Anyone who's marked by Jesus as belonging to Him, you'll make it to the end. As hard as it may be, even to the point of family members killing family members over the faith, if you belong to Christ, you will endure. When, again, not if, but when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Again, part of God's plan that that Christians are persecuted. When that happens, go to the next town. It's probably going to happen there too, but just, just, just keep on trucking from one place to the next, enduring the persecution. You might feel like Rudy out on the field, like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't like just keep, keep going from place to place, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And then he makes kind of a, a troubling comment or, or difficult to understand comment at the end of this section. He says, truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And we're not quite sure what to do with that, and I don't want to get off on a tangent uh, on this, but... Most likely what's being said here is, is more of a present time thing, that like the persecution is going to come to these disciples in this place and this time before they make it through all of Israel, before Jesus endures the ultimate act of persecution on the cross. And all of this, as we, we put this all together, it makes me think of another passage of Scripture with which we might be familiar, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we, we call it the hall of fame of faith. And, and we, we see a recounting of people who maybe we know, Moses and David and Samson and Abraham and kind of these big, big people 
in the Bible who did great things for God. Flawed people, of course, but did great things for God. In Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32, the author says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. Yes! Like, this is, a, this is a movie we would watch. But he doesn't stop there. Some, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were killed with the sword. We don't get behind this part so much, do we? says, they went about in the sheep of skins and goats because they were destitute and afflicted and mistreated. And we don't even know who these people are. The author goes on to say, of whom the world was not worthy of this unnamed group of people. They were persecuted for their faith. It says that they wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. They didn't have anything. They paid the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of, of their faith for the sake of other people coming to know Christ. These were the William Wallaces of the world, and again, whose names we don't even know. And so when Jesus says, here's this impossible mission I'm sending you out on, you're going to be like sheep among the wolves, like you're, you're going to get ravished. Some of you might put armies to flight, and some of you might be mighty with the sword, some of you might get sawn in two. Think about getting sawn in two. Like if you could get cut in half with one swipe with a sword and it's swift, maybe not that bad. Sawn in two, that's not swift. I mean, that's a bad way to, like that, I can't imagine. Some of you are going to put armies to flight. Some of you are going to get sawn in two. And either one, they're both contained within the plan of God for the gospel to go out to the world. Here again, this is when winning according to God's plan looks an awful lot like losing according to the world's perspective. God's plan to move the gospel throughout the world has to do with persecution. Now, I'm not standing up here saying that we ought to go look for opportunities to be persecuted. Right? Part of wisdom, part of being wise as a serpent is maybe avoiding those opportunities when we can, but not avoiding those opportunities so much so that the gospel suffers because of it. And I, think about, I think about the modern church here in America, and I'll try not to stand up too long on my soapbox here, but I think about the modern church here in America. Persecution is not even in our vocabulary it, it probably will be, not too far from now, but, but it hasn't been a part of our thinking, a part of our vocabulary. There's nothing more compelling, I don't think, than the underdog story. They wouldn't make a movie about Rudy Rudiger if he didn't get to play football for Notre Dame. That would it'd be a lame story. We, we, we're not compelled by that. Right? There wouldn't be a movie about William Wallace if he just died and didn't 
secure freedom for Scotland. We wouldn't watch that movie. It's not compelling. There's something compelling when somebody pays a sacrifice for something that they believe in. Whatever that thing is that they believe in, right? In our case, the thing we believe in is the gospel. And it's compelling when somebody's willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's compelling when someone's willing to get sawn in two because of belief in the gospel. We stand up and we pay attention. And at the end of the day, we may or may not agree with whatever that guy that got sawn in two was trying to peddle, but we pay attention to the story, right? Because it compels us. God knows that about humanity, and so He's put together this plan of this impossible mission of a bunch of sheep going out among the wolves. And it isn't always going to go well, but that's part of the compelling nature of the story. Can we think of another story that sounds kind of like that? Related story that this is what Christ did. God stepped into human flesh as a sheep among the wolves, and the wolves ravished the sheep. Did they not? They hung him on a cross. They nailed his hands and they nailed his feet and they put a crown of thorns on him and they whipped him and they flogged him and they scourged him. And he willingly, he did this willingly. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus was arrested, he went to pray and he asked the Father, if there's, if there's any way that this cup can pass, if there's another plan, please tell me now. But if this is the plan, okay, let's do it. And unlike Rudy out on the field not knowing what to do, Jesus intentionally, like he knew, he knew what was about to go down. He knew what the plan was. And he followed through with the plan. And in, in the greatest moment of when losing, when winning looks like losing, Jesus seemingly lost, but in reality, he won. Right? He secured victory over sin and over death. He secured for us the ability to have right standing with God if we believe in Him. Right? He did this. He's sending His disciples out, but, but he, he was in the middle of doing the same thing that He was sending them out to do. What a compelling story that is. That compels us. Jesus knows something that we don't know because He was willing to suffer for His cause. And as ones who have come to faith in Christ, it would make sense then that we would be willing to suffer for our cause, to suffer for our belief. Not because we're gluttons, but because we believe something that we believe everybody needs to know. We, we believe something that we think everybody needs to buy into. And if that's true, then what's stopping us from sacrificing so that others would come to know that belief? Right? There are countless stories of missionaries that have done this, have hopped on a plane and have gone to a foreign place and have suffered in this way. But not all of us are going to hop on a plane and go to a foreign country and, and suffer like this. Some of us, the suffering is across the street or next door or within our family or within our workplace. And again, this is God's plan and God's design for all of this. In verse 24, he tells us that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Jesus suffered. So those who are Christians are little Christs. If the Christ 
suffered, then, then the little Christ's that's coming as well. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul or a devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? And I guess if I want to communicate anything today, and hopefully this has been communicated, that, that God's plan for the church necessarily involves something that we typically try to avoid, suffering sacrifice, right? The modern American church, um, you know, we, we try to win people over with things that ultimately might not win them to the gospel. I don't want to stand up here and, and bag, like, I, love, I love the church, so don't hear me bagging on the church. I love the church. But we don't often remember or realize or want to realize that, that suffering is necessarily a part of the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 21, Paul says that, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, it, it pleases God to do unexpected things things. For Jews, Paul says, demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So in, in God's kind of ridiculous plan of suffering servants, through the foolishness of that plan, through the ridiculousness of winning by losing, this is God's design and it pleased God to do it this way. Paul goes on to say, to consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. In other words, I don't think there's any PhDs in the room. Not many were powerful not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So as he sends us out into this impossible mission with insurmountable odds, unspeakable difficulties possibly ahead, he has all authority. He owns everything, knows everything, sees everything, hears everything, controls everything, everywhere, all of the time in all of the universe. And he's the one sending us on the mission. So the impossible mission isn't impossible, even though it seems that way. And he promises us to be with us every step of the way from beginning to end through the mission. And because those things are true, we, we are guaranteed mission success. Now, that success doesn't always look like what we think it ought to look like, but we are, this is guaranteed not to fail guaranteed, will not fail. The church will persevere and the church will survive and the church will be around 
in the end. We're, we're told that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, even though it may feel like it sometimes. And so we don't have to engage a hostile culture in the way that a hostile culture engages us. Our enemy, the Bible tells us, is an enemy that we can't even see, right? The hostile culture is not our enemy. This is where the church tends to get it wrong too. The hostile culture is not our enemy. The hostile culture, like you and I once used to be, are blind, wretched, poor, miserable sinners in need of a Savior. And that's why he tells us, don't, don't fight fire with fire. Don't engage the hostility the way the hostility engages you because your real enemy is an enemy that you can't even see. So what do we do with this? Let, let, me, let me encourage us today to bring this to a close. If there were something in life that you were guaranteed that you would not fail at, what would you do? What would you do? That's something that oftentimes, um, you know, motivational speakers might ask you that question. If you were guaranteed that you wouldn't fail at something in life, what would you do? Would you go for that job? Would you buy that house? Whatever. Well, we have a mission guaranteed not to fail. Guaranteed to be hard, yes. Guaranteed to not always go the way that we want it to go. But absolute guarantee of 100% success. And so I would ask you, what, what will you do with that? What will you do with that? What will you do with the thought of spending eternity in heaven with Christ compared just to the little bit of time that we get here on this earth? What will you do with that? What will you do with the guarantee that engaging in gospel mission will not fail? And I'm not, I'm not, hopefully the answer is clear, but I'm, I'm going to just let you sit with that. <laughs> and consider it for you. What will you do knowing that your gospel mission will not fail? What will we do collectively as a church knowing that our gospel mission will not fail? And maybe the bigger question is, what will God do with that? Right? We know what God will do with that. God, God will save sinners as we engage in the gospel mission that absolutely will not fail. So please, please consider what, what God would have you do in light of guaranteed mission success. Father, we're thankful this morning, thankful that, um, that you're faithful to us, thankful that, uh, that you have all authority everywhere, thankful that um, you do not fail, thankful that you're perfect, thankful that you love us, and thankful that you love a hostile world. So God, help us as Christians and help us as the church to engage hostility uh, in a way uh, that honors and glorifies you and help us to engage in a way that causes people to consider who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. Help us to be stirred in our own faith uh, to engage in gospel mission in ways that we have yet to engage. God, help us as Christians, as little Christs, to live as much like the Christ uh, as possible, as much as we can. We can't do it apart from you, and we need your help, and we admit that today, and we ask in faith, God, that you would give us help uh, to engage in the mission as you would have us engage. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.